I hope no one takes offense at this, but, but, I am persuaded that October 31st is the most wrongly celebrated day in history. On that day, the world celebrates darkness and evil, but believers have an opportunity to celebrate truth and light. In the year 1517, as an unbelieving monk, Martin Luther submitted for a theological debate what are called his 95 theses. Most of you have heard of those. These are basically 95 statements of disagreement that he had with Roman Catholic doctrine, and specifically the practice of indulgences. According to the Roman Catholic doctrine then and now, Jesus' death on the cross did not satisfy the wrath of God against sinners who would put their faith in Christ. Instead, when a person comes to believe in Christ, their sins up to that point are forgiven, but as they continue to live and continue to sin, there are other means that are needed for them to be forgiven and freed from punishment. There are several ways in which those sins can be forgiven. The most well-known are the seven sacraments. And the most well-known sacrament is the Mass, whereby the, the blood and the body of Christ are re-sacrificed once again as a fresh sacrifice for sin. Another sacrament is penance, where you do acts that punish yourself, basically, for your sin. It is, it is self-atonement. But apart from the sacraments, another way sin is paid for is through purgatory, where a person supposedly will spend an undetermined amount of time being punished for their sin before they are finally freed and allowed to enter into heaven. Indulgences in Roman Catholic doctrine are a means by which to reduce someone's time in purgatory or otherwise reduce the penance they have to do in this life. While indulgences are still part of Catholic doctrine and practice, in Luther's time they were much more prominent as the Pope was wanting to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so the way he did that was he offered indulgences to those who contributed toward that building project. The sales pitch that promoted the indulgences went something like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Who wouldn't spend whatever money they had to deliver oneself or one's family out of purgatory? Martin Luther, a devoted Catholic though he was, knew that this was at odds with Scripture and he posted his 95 theses hoping to start a theological debate to reform the church. He actually wrote them in Latin, intending them to stay within the academic circles. But someone translated them and then started distributing them far and wide. And the short version of the fallout is that the Lord later opened his eyes to the true biblical gospel and saved him. In time, he was excommunicated from the church for writing numerous books and articles against Roman Catholic doctrine, but these theses which he posted is formally what launched what we call the Reformation. The Reformation in total was the recovery of the biblical gospel and other significant biblical truths as we've been saying already about salvation being in grace alone, 
and by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. As it turns out, the Reformation really paved the way for the Enlightenment to happen, so it's no overstatement to say that Martin Luther posting his theses on that door, which was the community bulletin board, sparked the movement that has touched every corner of the globe. Now, Martin Luther was certainly a man with many faults. There would be many things he believed and he did and he said that we would readily and quickly denounce. Nevertheless, he was a man whom the Lord used in a powerful way to restore the gospel. And that is worth remembering and celebrating on October 31st. If you haven't seen the 2017 documentary called Luther, The Life and Legacy of the German Reformer, it's an excellent way to spend your October 31st evening or in the days around it. But thinking about indulgences, it causes us to realize that death is a very powerful motivator. What you believe happens after this life will determine how you live this life if you believe that what comes next is thousands of years of torment, then you will do anything. You will sacrifice anything. You will listen to anybody who claims that they can reduce that punishment. Or if you believe that nothing comes next, then you will spend your days living for all the pleasures that this life has to offer. On the other hand, if you believe that what comes next is infinitely better than this life and that the worst thing that can happen in this life is you enter the next one sooner and that how you live today can actually improve the next life, that will have a dramatic effect on the character of your life. It will change how you live. It will set the course for your life here and now. In fact, I would submit to you that the only greater motivator than death is life, eternal life. And that's what we see in our text today. I would invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul's second inspired letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and our text is verses 1 through 10. In this text, Paul explains the realities that enabled him to live for Christ even though death dogged his every step. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 10, follow along as I read. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord." 
Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul was always under the threat of death. If your eyes look up or back to chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the treasure of the gospel. Earthen vessels referring to our bodies. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Death was, or Paul was always under the threat of death. In chapter 11, defending himself against the false apostles. He also writes in verses 23 to 25, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. And he goes on from there. I don't know what you envision Paul to look like. We've all seen perhaps paintings of those who made some suppositions about what he appeared, how he appeared. But undoubtedly, his body was full of scars on his face, especially on his back, perhaps the backs of his arms, the backs of his legs. This was a man who had endured much suffering. He had been beaten and flogged and stoned. Strong is not a word you would use to describe Paul's body. His enemies even used his, his weak appearance to say, would an would apostle of God look like that? Wouldn't God want someone strong in, you know, to serve him? And yet despite his weakness and frailty, he relentlessly served the Lord, knowing that he would get a new body one day. And he served the Lord even understanding that Doing so would be detrimental to his health. Well, let me ask you, what motivates your life? What keeps you faithful to the Lord each day? What gives you hope and encouragement as you live and move in this dark world? In a troubled marriage, a, a difficult school or work environment, in a corrupt political world, what keeps you motivated to please the Lord. In this text of 2 Corinthians 5, we find six realities that will fuel your life now and forever. Six realities that will fuel your life now and forever. Or in honor of Reformation Day, six theses, if you will. Six affirmations for life now and forever. Let's begin with the first one, the believer's certainty the believer's certainty. We know 
that when this sin-cursed body breaks down, we will receive a glorious, everlasting body. Look at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is the believer's certainty. We know, again, that when this sin-cursed body breaks down, we will receive a glorious, everlasting body. The first word there, for, is a conjunction which tells us we're jumping into the flow of a logical discussion. This statement in verse 1 is an explanation for something. Paul is answering a question raised by something he has already said. And what is that? Well, look at verse 16, just a few verses up. In chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. His outer body is decaying. With each passing day, it gets weaker and weaker. And yet at the very same time, his inner man, his soul, his heart, his mind grow stronger and stronger. That doesn't make any sense at all. If the body is decaying, shouldn't the soul decay with it? As you age and suffer, shouldn't your whole self, your material and immaterial parts, fall apart together? Shouldn't it be the case that as one's body is falling apart, the soul becomes more depressed, more sad, more grumpy, more irritable? What possible reason could someone have for becoming more confident, more joyful, more grateful, more loving, more hopeful as they see the end of their life drawing near and as their body grows weaker and weaker? Well, that's what we see in verse one. Because we know that this sin-cursed body, when this sin-cursed body breaks down, we will receive a glorious, everlasting body. Paul uses the language of a tent here to, to describe our bodies, which will be replaced by a building. The, the, the contrast of those two might call to mind the tabernacle, which was replaced by the temple, but that's probably not what was in Paul's thinking, because by his time, the temple had been built, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, and rebuilt again. And so he's probably not thinking about the temple, because he's wanting to communicate the idea of something that's indestructible. More likely in Paul's thinking is the fact that he was a tent maker. And tent making is a perpetual industry because tents always wear out. And that's what makes a tent a perfect metaphor for the body. Just as the material of a tent is temporary, so the human body also eventually wears out and returns to dust. Just as a tent is functionally limited, so the body has its own significant limitations. Just as a tent is vulnerable to damage and tears, so is the body. And just as a tent is torn down and replaced when it is worn out, so is the human body. When a person dies, their soul lives on, but their body, one way or another, turns to dust. But the good news for the believer 
is that we look forward to a building from God, a far superior body that will replace this weak body. Paul says, we know this. We know this. How do we know? (laughs) How do we know that we will get a building from God? How do we we know that this will happen and that the next body will be any better than, than this one? Well, we could say that we know because Paul has already talked about this. So this isn't new. This isn't a brand new doctrine that he's presenting to these believers. He told them about it in his previous letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in chapter 15. Paul writes about the reality of the resurrection for believers, that they will receive a new body which he described as imperishable, as glorious, as powerful, and as spiritual. And he says that it's necessary for us to receive a body because that which is imperishable, this body, or excuse me, that which is perishable cannot inherit the kingdom of God which is imperishable. Someone might say, well, that's great, Paul. Those are nice thoughts and intriguing even. But how do we know you're not just making that up? Anybody can say anything they want about the afterlife. Nobody can validate their claims, right? Well, unless someone died and rose again and presented themselves to hundreds of people with a new, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. And indeed, that is the convincing proof that produces confidence in us. Jesus Christ himself rose from the grave And when he rose, his body was not like Lazarus' body, who when he rose basically got his own body back, maybe perhaps minus some decay that he'd experienced and the disease that caused him to die to begin with. No, Jesus' body was new. It was glorious. It was powerful. With his new body, he could appear and disappear. He could travel long distance in an instant. He could go up to heaven in a cloud, and yet at the same time, he could eat and talk. He could embrace. People could touch him. You could walk with him. He wasn't a ghost. He had a real, physical, material body, but it was far better than what we have now. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that our future body will be like Christ's resurrected body He says, just as we have borne the image of the earth, referring to Adam's physical body, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, referring to Jesus' glorified body. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul wrote, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body... Uh, the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Another clue that we know this, by the way, is that when Paul uses the phrase there in verse 1, a house not made with hands, 
he uses a phrase that Jesus used when he prophesied his own resurrection. What's interesting about this, though, is that the gospel writers actually don't quote Jesus as saying this. They quote his accusers as saying that Jesus said this. You see, not everything that they accused him of was wrong. They, at least in part, accurately quoted what Jesus says. They just didn't understand it. Uh, It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Jesus foretold that he would get a new body at his resurrection, and he did. And he promises that we will receive one as well, and so we can be certain of that. As our bodies break down, as the pain increases, and become, as our bodies become more and more limited, our soul can be strengthened and encouraged and more hopeful because an upgrade is coming. That is the believer's certainty. Next, consider the believer's longing. The believer's longing. We long for a body defined by life, not death. Verses two to four, look at it. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This is the believer's longing. We long for a body that is defined by life, not death. It's been said that the moment we are born, we begin to die That's not medically true, but it is true from the perspective of the certainty of death. Imagine living in an age where there is no medical care of any kind. In Paul's day, there was no medication. There's no Tylenol, no Benadryl, no antacids, no NyQuil, nothing to mitigate or suppress the symptoms of sickness. If something was hurt, there was nothing you could take. If something stopped functioning, there was no way to restore that function. If you were born with some deformity, there was no wheelchairs, no medical devices, no prosthetics. There was no surgery. There were no hospitals, no clinics, no assisted living facilities. There was only the constant reminder of the frailty of life. Homes didn't muffle the sounds like they do today. And no one drove around in cars where the street noise was inaudible. So it would be normal to hear the sounds of human suffering. If there is any word that captures the sound of misery, it is groaning. That's the the word that Paul refers to repeatedly in verses 2 and 4. This groaning is the internal turmoil of the soul that we often feel in our gut. It's a groan that is sometimes silent and sometimes audible. Some of you groan because your body is racked with sickness and pain and decay. Some of you groan because your bodies have been used and abused. Some of you groan because your body is a constant reminder of your sins of the past. 
Some of you groan because you can't get any sleep. Or if you do get sleep, the rejuvenating functions of your body aren't working. Some of you groan because your malfunctioning brain is causing you to lose your mind. It doesn't matter why you groan. The fact is, we all get to that point in life where we groan. Yes, even you teenagers. You will get there too. But for believers, our groaning is not just sorrowful. It is an anticipatory groan. It is a hopeful looking forward to, when will this be over? When will I get my new body? It anticipates better days. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. For we know, he says, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We groan longing for the day when our bodies will be redeemed. It's not that we prefer to be bodiless spirits. That's, not, that, that's what Paul means when he says not be found naked in verse 3. It's not that we think bodies are a bad idea and it'd just be better to be lost in this nebulous sea of a spirit world. Rather, he says in verse 4, we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed, or as the ESV puts it, further clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Again, we don't want to be bodiless, nor do we want a copy of what we already have and just have that wear out again. Instead, we want something more. We want something better. We want something greater, something defined by life and not death. We want life to swallow up death, to completely overtake it, to overcome it, and to destroy all the vestiges of this body of death. This image of of swallowing up something uh, occurs a number of times throughout Scripture. One of those times is when Korah and his followers rebelled against Moses, and it says the ground opened up and swallowed them and closed back up over itself. But Paul borrows this idea from swallowing up, of swallowing up death from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, the, pop, the prophet looks to the end of history and records what God will do. He says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." He will swallow up death for all time. The first time Paul picks up on that theme is at the end of 1 Corinthians where he writes, but when this imperishable will have put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That is what we want. That is what we long for. We long for life. We long for victory. We long for immortality. That is the believer's longing. So we long for certainty. Or excuse me, the, the believer's certainty is the first thesis. We know that this sin-cursed body breaks down. We will receive a glorious everlasting body and the believer's longing. We long for a body defined by life, not death. Then we see the believer's guarantee 
the believer's guarantee. God has guaranteed our glorious everlasting body by giving us a down payment, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse five. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. If someone had any remaining doubts that the promises of God were trustworthy, Paul now removes all doubt by pointing to the reality that God hasn't just given us a promise and expected us to believe that he's going to fulfill it. He's actually given us a foretaste, an initial experience of the beginning of what is to come. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul states the same truth. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him, in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In this text of Ephesians, we hear the word sealed, and that reminds us of the sealing of the Spirit, which is that truth that just as a wax in ancient times, a wax seal guaranteed the authenticity of a document, so the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God's promises are true and trustworthy. But that's not what Paul means when he uses the word pledge, both here in Ephesians and especially in our text. That word is actually not very well translated. It's the Greek word erebon, which doesn't mean promise or pledge as we would think of it. A better translation would be down payment, a deposit, earnest money for you realtors. The Spirit is the first installment of what is to come. By receiving the Holy Spirit, we have in our lives a portion of what God has promised. Now let me emphasize that because there is a sense in which What God has already done in our lives is more than what he has yet to do. The Holy Spirit raised us from spiritual death. He took us from being dead and blind to the things of God. And he opened our eyes and revived our hearts to understand. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. He trains our conscience so that instead of loving the sin like we used to do, now we hate sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new desires and new loves. We love God. We love the people of God. We love the things of God. We love His Word. And we desire to do what's right. Apart from the Holy Spirit, Scripture says we hated God. The Holy Spirit also guides us in life by bringing to mind the truth of Scripture relevant to your circumstances. So as you take in the Word of God, as you meditate on the truth of Scripture, the the Holy Spirit uses that in your life to guide you and remind you of the truth that you need in the moment. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we had no guidance. We just did whatever we felt was right. Some of you know all too well the destructive power of living apart from the Holy Spirit, living a life devoid of the Holy Spirit. And we see it all around us. We hear about it all the time on the news, on the radio, all the destruction that sin causes. The presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life makes an immeasurable difference 
in their life. Some of you can testify to that dramatic transformation that the Spirit has worked in your life. Others of you might struggle to identify any areas where the Spirit has worked to transform your life. And friend, that's a problem. If you struggle to point to any area of your life that is markedly different from your unbelieving friends or coworkers, that might be a sign that you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't love Christ, if you don't love God's people, if you don't love the Word of God, if you don't have an increasing hatred of sin, if you find the Bible confusing and boring, my friend, you might not be a Christian. Because if you cannot detect the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you might be self-deceived about your spiritual condition. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always works in a believer's life. He never lies dormant, inactive, unaffecting the person in whom he dwells. So if you have an undeniable love of God, if, if you can say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. If you find great joy with being, uh, in being with the people of God, if you hate your sin and you have a growing, and you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what God will do after we die is take you to the finish line. Complete that work that he's already begun in your life. And then he'll give you a new body that will stop hindering you from living out the life that the Holy Spirit gives you. The Holy Spirit's not just a, a token down payment. He is not earnest money that the Lord will reluctantly but willingly give up if he changes his mind. The Holy Spirit is God himself. He has given himself to us and is already working with us, working in us. What remains in us is less dramatic than what he has yet to do. So we know that he will transform us because he is transforming us. That is our guarantee. Next, we see the believer's preference the believer's preference, given the glories to come, the believer always prefers to be with the Lord. Look at verses 6 through 8. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord." Now, if you've been paying attention up to this point, when you hear Paul say, while we are at home in the body, we are away from, you would expect him to say something like, we are away from our building from God. We are away from our glorified body. Something like that. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, we are absent from the Lord. This is a much-needed reminder that in all our thinking about eternity, in all our, our pondering about the glories of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, what should really stand out in our lives is not what, what I get in terms of a new body or what the, the beauty will be, but the fact, the reality that we will be with the Lord. 
that we will be in his presence, that we will see him face to face, that we will talk with him and walk with him, maybe laugh with him, embrace him. No doubt we'll be confounded by the glories of heaven, and and we should be thinking about those things and and glorying in what God has revealed to us, the, the, the hints that he's given us. But it'll be something like going to visit family who has recently moved into a new, maybe even a brand new home with all the bells and whistles. When you go visit, sure, you want to see the house. You want to get the tour. You want to know everything that, that they've been able to enjoy. But you're not there for the house. You're there for them. You want to enjoy fellowship with them. You want to enjoy spending time with them. And that is what eternity will be, being in the presence of the Lord. Right now, Paul says, we live by faith and not by sight. What that means is we live in the realm of faith. It's not that Jesus isn't with us now. It's that we can't see him. We, we know that he's with us. We believe with, that he's with us. We have fellowship and communion with him even now. But we don't see him. He is not with us in bodily form. And so the true joy of receiving a new glorified body is not the body itself, but the fact that with the new body, we will enjoy the full presence of the Lord forever. With all the prosperity and health we enjoy, there are times when this life is pretty good. Rachel and I have not been to Hawaii yet, but... I imagine that when people are sitting on the tarmac ready to take off for Hawaii for vacation, no one's thinking, oh, I hope the Lord comes right now. (laughs) Or no one sits in the dealership excited about this brand new car thinking, oh, come Lord Jesus, come right now. (laughs) Why, Why is that? Because we often forget that even the best, the greatest, the most exhilarating, the most exciting times of this life are just a a hint. They're not bad. They're just a hint, a, a foretaste of the glories that are to come. At any and every point in a believer's life, we should desire to be with Christ more than anything else. I remember as a teenager thinking, oh Lord, please don't come until I reach this milestone. Please don't come until I get married. Please don't come until I, I don't remember all the things, but certainly marriage was one of those. We should be able to say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42, with full sincerity, we should be able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth besides you. Psalm 73, we should always prefer to be with the Lord. Now, another point we can draw out of this text is the reality that that there are only two places a believer can be. Did you notice that? You can either be at home in the body or you can be at home with the Lord. If you're not at home in the body, you're with the Lord. Or if you're not with the Lord, you're home in the body. This rules out the doctrine of purgatory. 
No place exists where believers go to be punished for sin. Jesus already paid the price for our sin. So when we die, we go immediately into his presence. This also rules out, by the way, the doctrine of soul sleep taught by Seventh-day Adventists. Soul sleep is the idea that when your body dies, your soul essentially becomes dormant, goes to sleep with the body. And when Jesus returns and the resurrection happens, then you awaken and are glorified at that time. But even though the scripture uses the idea of sleep as a metaphor of death, this passage and others affirm the reality that if, if we die, we're instantly in the presence of the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. When you close your eyes in death, you open them in eternal life. We've looked at the believer's certainty that we know that when this sin-cursed body breaks down, we will receive a glorious, everlasting body. We've looked at the believer's longing. We long for a body defined by life, not death. The believer's guarantee, he has guaranteed our glorious, everlasting body by giving us a down payment, the Holy Spirit. And then the believer's preference, given the glories to come, the believer always prefers to be present with the Lord. The fifth thesis, the next affirmation, brings us to the so what of the text. What does all this mean for my life today? Yeah, that, that's wonderful for the time to come, but what, what about today? With such a focus and longing and a desire to be with Christ in our new glorified bodies, how should that impact my life today? Well, number five, we see the believer's ambition the believer's ambition. We always make it our aim to please him. Look at verse nine. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Thus far, we've been talking about the differences between this life and the next. But here we find that there is at least one thing that should stay the same one aspect of continuity, and that is our occupation, how we spend our time and our energy. What should remain the same is found in that toward which we apply our strength, our resources, our abilities in this body and in our resurrected body. This word ambition is used three times in the New Testament and the other two times are helpful to, to think through what it looks like to have this as our ambition. In Romans chapter 15, verse 20, Paul writes, and thus I aspired, that's the word there, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Paul's ambition was essentially to proclaim Christ wherever Christ had not yet been proclaimed, to, to spread the gospel where it had not yet pre, uh, reached. He wanted to break new ground, as it were, and get the gospel further than it had ever gone before. That was his ambition. Now, your ministry doesn't have to be that type of ministry, but you should make it your ambition to pro proclaim Christ in your own spheres of influence where God has called you. You should aspire to be faithful to witness for Christ in your home, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your neighborhood. Some of you, might, might, God might even call to, to go out and to proclaim the gospel or to go into full-time ministry. 
But proclaiming Christ in whatever sphere you're in or God calls you to is how we please God in this life. But another aspect is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. There Paul writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So not only do you please God, please Christ in your life by proclaiming the gospel, but you also please Christ by living in the Monday moments of your life as a Christian. You do your work with the honesty and integrity of a Christian. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. You love your husband as the church loves Christ. You raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You engage in relationships with humility and kindness and serving and loving one another. You see, living a life that glorifies God is not about living an extraordinary life. It's about living an ordinary, Christ-centered life. Fulfilling ordinary roles and responsibilities in a Christ-centered way and taking every opportunity to point people to Christ. That is the kind of life that pleases Christ. William Tyndale wrote, There is no better work than to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle. All are one. To wash dishes and to preach are all one. As touching the need, meaning fulfilling that calling to please God, unquote. He could say that because he knew 1 Corinthians 10.31, which is what tells us that even the most mundane decisions of life have eternal consequences. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God. Now, this ambition is not just for this life, as we said. This will continue to be our ambition for eternity. When we enter into God's presence, it's not recess forever. It's not vacation everlasting. We will continue to work. We will continue to do things. I'll get to that later. But we will please God in eternity and forever in all that we do. Now, if we need any reasons to please God, that's our sixth thesis. Why should we make it our ambition to please God? Number six, the believer's reward. The believer's reward. The coming judgment of believers motivates living for Christ today. The coming judgment of believers motivates living for Christ today. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The reason you should make it your ambition to please the Lord in this life and not wait until you're free from sin is because how you live your life today has a direct impact on your experience of eternity. I admit that this raises more questions than the Lord has given us answers to, but perhaps We can address a couple of them. First of all, is this passage saying that believers will be judged? I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
The judgment seat of Christ spoken of here is not a judgment of condemnation, a judgment for punishment. It is an evaluation of one's life for the purpose of granting rewards. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15, Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In short, how we invest in this life will determine what our life in the next life looks like. You can either yield eternal benefits or you can just waste your efforts. Unlike the stock market, what makes the difference is not outside factors over which you have no control, but rather whether you invest in the right things and in the right way. There are are thousands of causes Christians can and probably should be involved with, but the church only has one mission, making disciples of Jesus Christ. An immediate follow-up question is, what kinds of rewards will we get? What's behind door number four? When Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven, what kind of treasures are they? Well, Scripture doesn't give us a clear and direct answer. It does give us some general indications. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus taught that faithfulness in this life will yield greater responsibilities in the next life. Revelation tells us that on the new earth, there will be nations, there will be work, There will be productivity. Things will be made and produced. And perhaps our rewards will involve our involvement in those things, our position in that chain, the kind of work that we do. Scripture is not overly clear, but there's clear differences. All believers will be saved for sure. All believers will get a new glorified sinless body. All believers will be on that one new earth. But no one will be discontent because even the least glorious life in eternity is infinitely better than the best life here on earth. But there will be distinctions. There will be differences. And those differences will be based on how you live your life here and now. So six theses, six affirmations for life now and forever looked at the believer's certainty. We know that the sin-cursed body, when it breaks down, we will receive a glorious everlasting body. The believer's longing, we long for a body defined by life, not death. The believer's guarantee, God has guaranteed our glorious everlasting body by giving us a down payment, the Holy Spirit. The believer's preference, given the glories to come, the believer always prefers to be with the Lord. The believer's ambition, whether we are with the Lord or away from Him, we make it our aim to please Him. And then the believer's reward, the coming judgment of believers, motivates living for Christ today. For Paul, these truths motivated him to expend every effort to please the Lord because this life was only going to get better and his journey was going to last forever. In Luther's last two theses, we read this, theses number four, uh, 94, Christians are to be exhorted 
that they be diligent in following Christ their head through penalties, deaths, and hell. And then number 95, and thus be confident of entering into heaven rather through many tribulations than through the assurance of peace. Of course, contradicting the idea of being assured through indulgences. The world, the flesh, and the devil will ensure that no believer will get through this life unscathed and without difficulty. We should not be surprised, nor we should be discouraged when difficult times come. Instead, we must walk in the footsteps of all those who have gone before us in faith, who while they were decaying, their inner man was growing stronger and stronger, including, by the way, our Lord Jesus Christ, who as he faced death, strengthened himself knowing what he was about to do. And he knew of the glories to come and what he would accomplish. So what about you? What are you living for? What are, you, what are you motivated by? What enables you to endure trials and difficulties? A friend, if, if you're not a Christian, none of this hope applies to you. The only anticipation you can have is the anticipation of God's wrath, God's judgment. But turn to Christ today. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And you too can have the hope of eternal life. Repent and believe and give your life to him and all this and more can be yours. Don't leave here without the hope of eternal life. Talk to someone around you. Come up and talk to me and we would be glad to tell you more about Jesus Christ and how you can be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for, again, this revelation, this truth that is written in words for us to know, to meditate on, to ponder, to consider, to imagine the the, the greatest glories that our finite minds can imagine of what eternity with you will be like. Lord, we know that this life is full of difficulty. We know that this life is full of trouble. Strengthen us with these truths. Embolden us with these truths. Cause us to stand firm in the storms of life knowing what you have promised and that we already have so much of it in the person of the Holy Spirit. May it give us joy. May it give us peace. May it give us confidence and encouragement to serve you all the days of our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.